Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm delighted to be in conversation with Janice Cook Newman, who is the author of two award-winning novels and a memoir. She's also a dedicated Zen practitioner who considers the San Francisco Zen Center her home temple. This is where our paths have crossed over the years, both in and out of the meditation hall. So welcome Janice to the Spark Zen podcast. It's wonderful to be in conversation with you. Thanks so much for having me, Heather. I'm glad that we finally were able to make time in our schedules to have this conversation about two things that we're both passionate about, writing and Zen. You mentioned on your Substack newsletter, Writing Zen, that you recently gave a way-seeking mind talk about how you came to Buddhism. So I'd like for you to to speak a little bit about your mind-seeking writer talk. How did you first start to feel or sense yourself as, as a writer? I don't think I ever sensed myself as not a writer. I think from the earliest age, it's what I wanted to do. I was a huge reader. And I, after a time, I thought, I want to be that person telling those stories. I want that to be me. But it took me a while to get there. I'm kind of practical for a writer. And so I thought I could study this in school, but then I won't be able to make any money. So I better study something else. And I studied psychology. But I always dabbled. I always took writing classes, always wrote things. Then for, I would say, about 15 years, I had a company with my husband at the time, and we were writing corporate comedy. Oh, corporate <laughs> comedy. That's, was that for educational purposes? Not really. No, it was more <laughs> like if Apple wanted to take all of the salespeople who had made quota to Hawaii and they wanted entertainment, they would hire us and we would meet with them and talk to them and find out all the things that made them crazy, that they liked. And we would write a Saturday night live type format show, but all the jokes were about them. And then we'd go to Hawaii and do it, which was kind well, of- that sounds a lot of fun, like a lot of fun. Yeah, but I, I'm going to say it was an amazing learning experience for someone who's a novelist because you write jokes, there are people up on stage telling them, and you can immediately see the audience reaction. Mm. And so it made me realize that as a writer, you always want to be thinking about your audience, your readers. What are they thinking and feeling? How is this affecting them? So in a way, it was like a kind of MFA to do that. It was after I adopted my son that I decided to write a whole book to do the memoir. I think I had had too much coffee that day because I was completely unpublished when I had the idea. But I remember thinking, I want to write the book that I wanted to read while I was going through the process. Because all the books about adoption were either how-tos or they were sort of you know, this was the greatest day of my life. They were all completely positive. And I didn't feel like they were that honest because adoption is really an emotional roller coaster and you're constantly doubting what you're doing. So that gave me the idea to write the memoir. I was very lucky to have a lot of good teachers to really show me how to do it and to sell it and publish it. That was 
great. After that, I wanted to keep writing, and I realized I had not done anything at all interesting enough in my life for another memoir. So I had to learn to write fiction. So that's sort of how it happened. <laughs> it's fascinating to me because we just never know when that, you know, in Buddhism, we call it bodhicitta, the mind that awakens to the idea of enlightenment arising. And it's kind of a mystery as to when that seed starts to blossom, just like the seed of creativity. Yeah, although I'm going to tell you, writing memoir is very hard. I often say it's like therapy practiced on yourself by an amateur. <laughs> you need a lot of self-awareness. But my memoir is like 250 pages. They were so much harder than my next novel, which was 650 pages. <laughs> mm. Why do you think that was for you, that the memoir was more difficult? Well, you have to write about difficulties in your life. You almost always have to write about something that you don't want to write about. I set out on that project believing that I was going to tell all these amusing stories about our time in Moscow. And I had a wonderful writing group helping me. And they kept saying, okay, you need to go back and write more about why did it take you so long to decide to have a child and why then? And it was all about when my mother died. And I did not want to write about my mother dying. I did not mm -hmm. want to go there. And there was no way I couldn't. Mm. In the end, it's usually the best writing you do, but it's very hard. Dogen says that, right? Taking the backward step to illuminate oneself when we're meditating and taking that backward step when you're writing a memoir is those places that are hidden in you also, I feel like readers can feel that when we're not being authentic on the page. I, I think that Dogen quote is really good. And I use it for all my memoir students now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because I think it is a good way to do it because there's also that idea that you are observing. You are observing how you felt at a certain time. And that little bit of distance that you get if you write about a difficult time, but you're writing about it, you're a tiny step away. It's sort of when you meditate and your thoughts are coming and instead of grabbing onto them, you're observing them. You're taking a little step away from them. And I think that makes those thoughts and it makes the thing you're writing about a little easier to cope with. There's something about having a little bit of spaciousness between what's arising as you're putting it on the page. You talk in your newsletter about letting go. The more identified, at least for me, the more identified I was with being a writer and having to write, it was harder to do because there's a lot of constriction, energetic constriction. And that's really the opposite or can stifle that energetic creative flow of imagination. And I think there's a lot of fear because you're always worried, like, am I gonna be good enough? Because if I'm not good enough, then maybe I can't call myself a writer. And so all of that fear and pressure on you to just be really good. Creativity needs a lot more freedom than that. And creativity does not thrive in fear, at least in my experience. <laughs> and as you say that, there must be a balance though, right? The middle way between, at least for me, like having a deadline a container, just like we do in meditation, we have a 40 minute container where we sit still 
and then we um, are released from that container and having no container whatsoever where there is no deadline and 25 years later, you're still trying to finish that short story, which nothing's wrong with that, except I guess nothing really is wrong with that if you're just creating to create. But I also know how you can feel a little like you're on a, like a gerbil on that little wheel in the cage where you don't see the fruits of all of your hard work. It's interesting that you say that because I have journalist friends, one who recently got a book deal for a book she is writing now, and they talk about how much they need external deadlines. They really need someone to put that container around them and tell them when they need to do it. And my first two books, I did sell before they were written. It's a little more typical with memoir fiction, not so much, but because I was writing about a real person, about Mary Todd Lincoln, a publisher was willing to take the chance on it. And when it came time for my third book, I would not even show it to my agent. I didn't like having that external deadline. For me, there was always in the back of my mind this calendar counting down of how many more months I had before I had to turn in the manuscript. I couldn't do my best work with that. And I feel, especially with fiction, that it needs the freedom to be able to take a lot of wrong turns, which you need some time for. For me, it works because I'm very disciplined. I write just about every day and I set deadlines for myself. But I know that not everybody is like that. What comes up for me as you say that is also the importance of the discovery about, well, what is your particular creative process? Because I, I, I've studied with two really wonderful writers, the novelist Ernest J. Gaines, who passed away a few years ago, and also Robert Olin Butler. And both of them, different styles where Bob would write every day for two hours, right? and probably even more. Once he won a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> for fiction, he had a lot more time probably to write. I, I was in his MFA program. And then Ernest Gaines, when I was doing a semester long workshop with him, he said he only wrote when he had an idea. And he still wrote on yellow legal pads. And only when he was only had an idea, whereas Bob was adamant about every day, you need to keep that channel open two hours a day, two hours a day. And I mentioned this because I think sometimes people can get stuck in this idea of what their process should be based on, oh, this Pulitzer Prize winning author, oh, oh, this, you know, National Book Award winner, he does this or she does that. And there's a lot of energy spent on how do I do it right? I think that's, that's one of the most common questions at a book reading is people will say, what is your process? And sometimes I think because they think, yes, and if I do exactly what you're doing, I'll publish my book. And I think I could say, I stand on my head and write and they would probably do it. <laughs> so you're right. You do have to find your own. But I do think you can learn from other writers' processes. I just learned a lot from Ruth Zeki for this new book that she has out. She talked in an interview about how important writing first thing in the morning is in that liminal space between being asleep and awake. And I have always done that. Like when I'm creating new stuff, when I'm doing a first draft of a novel, let's say, I would always every morning get up and set it, set my alarm for 10 minutes and free write 
whatever new material was coming in. But she does it for a couple of hours. So for a while there, I was, because I was creating new material, I tried that and I really found it helpful to sit at my desk for like an hour right after I got up with like a pot of tea and write for an hour. It was amazing. So I feel really grateful to her for mentioning that. That is also when I prefer to write. Of course, as a Zen priest living at San Francisco Zen Center, my mornings are usually occupied by meditating. But there, I, I feel the same. For me, before the 10,000 things start to clutter the mental space, that a critical mind is still kind of asleep and you could sneak in there mm -hmm. without maybe it interfering so much. And, and I do feel that just as with anything, like you said, meditating, writing, yoga, martial arts, everything is a practice. And maybe could you speak a little bit about how your writing path intersected with the Zen path and how has that affected your experience of being a writer and the process of writing? So I never thought that they would intersect. You know, they, to me, they seemed kind of separate at first. For me, writing is such a big part of my life. And then when you practice, practice becomes such a big part of your life. So they can't help but intersect. So there's some very practical ways that I think they, that my practice has fed my writing. And, and one of them is, I think, the ability to concentrate, for sure. I mean, there's all kinds of science about how consistent meditation practice increases that part of your brain. So I think there's that. But I think there's also the mindfulness aspect in that if you're paying more attention to the world, you can more accurately render the world on the page. I would always write dawn as silvery colored. And then I finally got up early enough to see dawn and it was mostly pink. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so now I know that. <laughs> Did your editor ever flag silver dawn? What what, you, what glasses are you wearing, Janice? <laughs> I don't think anyone in publishing gets up that early. <laughs> I think you have to start practicing to get up that early. That's when they're going to sleep because they've been up all night reading and editing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think there was some of that. What I try to touch on in, in the writings and newsletter is bigger than that. I think that when you do some kind of art, it is tied up in who you are and who you like to think you are and who you don't want to think you are. And that's where I think it comes in the most handy. Um, I have a very dear friend who has a book. It's just come out, but he gave it to me as a, an early draft. And it was so good that I had a crisis of confidence. I mean, it was like, I can't believe this. And I had to stop and think, okay, so why is that so disturbing to me? You know, this is someone that I love and I, he's so good here. And I thought, yeah, because I think I have the idea that among my friends, I want to think that I'm the best writer. Before practice, I would never have gotten there. I would have just felt bad. Then I might have been mad at myself for feeling bad. I would not have been able to track all that. And so this is what I think. I gain that comparison mind is certainly insidious and pervasive. I mean, most people, many people, especially us sensitive artist types, when we start to allow that comparison mind to proliferate, 
it's really hard to get off the dime and do anything. I remember when I was at the monastery, we eat three meals a day in the meditation hall and I was one of the servers and I was bringing up these pots. And as we know, thoughts just come and go through the minds, ether. And this thought arose like, oh, you'll never be as talented as Toni Morrison. <laughs> I, I compare high. <laughs> but then there was this, because I, because I was in this beautiful, rarefied environment of a monastery, I was just suffused with this calmness, this serenity. And this thought arose, Toni Morrison is you. There's no separation. I feel that was really important because of our profound interconnection. That sympathetic joy, right? One of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, is feeling that sympathetic joy because look at the beautiful work that Toni Morrison has given us. The beautiful work that you have given us, the beautiful work that your friend who you think is better than you has given us. Also, since we are in a capitalistic, competitive environment, sometimes it's hard not to have that affect our writing, our creativity, and our ability to be of support to other people like, like you have been in all of your entrepreneurial pursuits, helping other writers. You're reminding me too, in that same interview with Ruth Ozeki, she said that she would always read people and think, oh, I'm not good enough not good enough. Okay. She's a Zen priest and was saying that. And another writer, local writer, Karen Joy Fowler went to her and said, it doesn't matter. The writer you are is enough. That is really stuck with me. I think that is so helpful. The writer you are is enough. One of my favorite Zen teachers, her name is Sherry, C-H-E-R-I Huber. And she says, we are all adequate, more than adequate to meet whatever is arising in our life. And that also brings forward that teaching of nothing's lacking. In this moment, in this conversation, there's nothing missing. Not only is that helpful just in alleviating some suffering and through practicing Zen meditation, but also just, just extending that out to life that whenever the mind starts to look around saying what's missing in my writing, you know, how, how, you know, where am I not measuring up? It reminds me to drop that. Like I'm the one holding the measuring stick. Mm-hmm. I can also drop it in your writing Zen uh, newsletter. You have a few lessons that I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that you learned from your Zen practice. So one is just don't know mind. The not knowing is most intimate. How you experience that as a writer and a Zen practitioner? I think for me, because I'm the kind of writer that outlines and likes to know the path my book is going to take, I think mainly because I don't like to spend a lot of time writing stuff I don't use. But then I would get very stuck, like, okay, I know this, and this is how this character is, and this is how it's going to be. And then I'll start to write, and as always happens, things change, characters start to move. And I would think, well, no, she can't do that because here I've set it up this way and I know how she's going to go. And um, so one day I thought, wait a minute, I'm the God of this universe. I can make the character do whatever I want the character to do. So that was that was very helpful for me. The other thing is I think after you will publish a book, you start to think you're an expert. Like I know exactly what I'm doing. And I very much felt that way when I went back for my MFA in my fifties 
and I had already published two books and I, I, you know, I went to get the credential, but I thought I'm not really going to learn anything because I know all this. But of course I was wrong. <laughs> I got there and once I let go of that idea, like, I know, I, and just opened myself to like, maybe I don't know, maybe they're going to show me something. My writing got so much better because it is a practice and you never really get to where you're going. You could win a Pulitzer, doesn't matter. The next day is another day at the page, just like the next, the next time you sit is a fresh day at the, on the cushion. That's really helpful for um, all of us to hear because our society seems to really promote this idea that you have to be an expert. And it's like a tyranny of experts, right? And in, in, in the mind, a tyranny of experts is the wonderful saying of Suzuki Roshi, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities in the expert mind, there are few. And that kind of constricted consciousness that also reminds me of Uchiyama Roshi's book, Opening the Hand of Thought, right? Letting go of the thoughts, letting them just flow through. And that creativity that is there if we don't think we know everything. When I write, I don't have any outline. I would write, I work out outlines and I just find myself off somewhere else. <laughs> so maybe I was too much don't know mine. <laughs> But that's your process. Almost no other writers I know outline the way I do. One of the very few I know who does that. And sometimes I do have to loosen my grip on it. Well, that's the other lesson I wanted to, wanted to ask you to talk about was this letting go of this novel that you were working on for several years that was set in New York City in the 1970s. Like letting go doesn't sound uh, all that much fun. It sounds like it's kind of painful and in our society where we have this idea that we should be getting more, not letting go. How, how did that process of letting go of that novel free you up? How did it affect you? Well, it was hard. I had worked on it for three years. I put a lot of time into it and I was having trouble getting an agent to take it. And the more I looked at it and worked on it, I thought, this is not the book I want to write. I really don't want to write this book anymore. You know, I want to write something that says something else. But what's hard to let go of is that you think, but you put in all this work. And we also are in a society, you're rewarded for completing a task. And the idea to just set it aside, let it go. It's not like I took it into the yard and burned it, but I, mean, I could come back to it at some point. But once I let it go, oh my God, it felt so good. Once I finally said, okay, you're just going to do this. Just let it go. You can't get that time back. Clearly, you must have learned something about writing because every time you write, you get better. And just let it go. And I was so relieved not to have to work on it anymore. <laughs> and it was like, oh, right. I really wanted to do this. I really wanted to let this go. <laughs> but it's hard. I mean, but you know, I wrote that, that newsletter came out. I can't tell you how many people wrote back to me telling me about all the novels they had like under the bed or tucked away in a drawer that they had decided to let go. And sometimes we just have to see them as writing practice because whatever you write after is going to be influenced by having done that. And the more you write, I do believe the more you write, the better you write. This sort of dovetails nicely into the next Zen writing lesson, which is 
no gaining idea. Suzuki Roshi says something like, there is no preparation for what's next. So in this moment, each moment for those three years that you worked on that novel, complete in itself, that is its own fruition. And there's nothing that was lacking. And because you were able to let go of it, that, like you said, that influences, there's nothing excluded. Every moment is always included. I feel like for me, when I let go of those expectations that I have to finish something or that I need to stick to it, I think we really need to pay attention like you did to how do I feel when I let go of this novel? And I, and I think we often sort of ignore how we feel and Zen practice helps us, as we said earlier, become attuned to really what's going on, not the ideas that society or, or other or friends may be telling us about having to finish. Also, as you're saying that, I'm remembering that I decided to write that book with a complete gaining idea. I thought I'm going to write this because I think it's going to be super marketable and, and a publisher will love it. And it's going to be a big hit. And so it wasn't necessarily a book that was coming out of me. It was more of a coming from the outside um, of what I thought I could get by writing this book. You write a lot and your book goes out in the world and then it's out of your control. <laughs> There's like very little you can do. You can do all the things your publisher tells you to do about be on social media about your book, but really you can't go to a bookstore and force someone to buy it. And so it's very hard to, if you're saying, oh my God, I worked so long and we didn't sell that many of this one or, or that one, or this reviewer didn't like it. So then you start to think, well, how can I give them what they want? I think that's always a mistake. And I have many students who say, what about this idea? What if I just write this sort of romance thing? And I, I always say, well, do you want to write that? If you want to write it, then write it. But if you're writing it, you know, because you think it, it's going to sell or it's going to make a lot of money or they're going to turn it into a movie, it's not the reason to do it. Writing retreat, Zen session. How do you see those informing each other? What are the parallels? To me, Zen practice and writing is like solitude and community. We go to a Zendo, or at least we used to. Sometimes we sit online nowadays. Being alone with others. Writing is a, sol a solitary practice. And as you've mentioned before in your newsletter, it's helpful to have a community or a Sangha. That's sort of the idea behind Page Street, the new co-working space that I've opened up because we'll be a group of writers sitting in the same space in silence, working together. But there is that energy that comes from other people. And I was thinking about that because after the pandemic, when I was finally able to get back into the Zendo at San Francisco Zen Center, it was so emotional. I mean, I sat there and suddenly, you know, I'd been sitting throughout the pandemic, but by myself. And, or online, which is not really the same thing, but to sit there and hear people breathing and feel them moving and just the disturbance of other people in the air was so supportive. And, you know, the amount of time that I sat was so much easier. It was easier to concentrate because we were all doing that same thing. And I have a, I've always felt that way about writing. Even before I opened Page Street, I would run something in my house for some of my writer friends. We called it the Roast Chicken Writers Club. 
um, because we would write together on a Sunday afternoon and I would roast a chicken. After I became a vegetarian, we've had to rename it the Ghost Chicken Writers Club. <laughs> but I, would, I could have a dozen writers in my house, all at different places, and we spend 90 minutes or two hours writing together and then having dinner together. But that time we spend just knowing that other people are in the room doing the same thing, that they have the same intention you do, it's amazingly supportive. And that energy just feeds your work. And you call it when you were sitting online during the pandemic over Zoom and writing together, surveillance writing? Yes. <laughs> yeah, during the pandemic, there were like five of us and we would get on Zoom together and write with our cameras on. And we did call it surveillance writing because we felt like if you got up too many times and you were like doing your laundry in the back, everyone would know. So you were kind of forced to sit in your chair. I could call it surveillance zen when you're expected to be in the meditation hall. There's people checking in if you're not showing up. There's a community of people who are having the same intention and how powerful as you were saying about being in the physical meditation hall, thriving and flourishing, being in that energy of, of other people who are meditating and being in that energy of people who are dedicated to creating stories with, with ephemeral words. I think it's really true. I mean, you think about it, we, we tell stories with just black marks on paper. Talk a little bit about the Page Street co-working space for writers. This seems like to me it's your third or fourth uh, entrepreneurial venture. It, it is a bit. So the first was Lit Camp and Page Street is actually part of the nonprofit Lit Camp. But Lit Camp I started 10 years ago. It's a juried writers conference, but it's very small. Unlike other ones, we only take 40 people. And it was meant to help writers get their books out in the world. I mean, that was so much our goal. So we would bring in agents and editors and published authors and do workshops. And in that 10 years, quite a number of people have had their books go out in the world. But one thing I did notice after the first year was that we were ending and, and instead of asking me for like the agent's email address or some famous author's email address, the participants were asking me for each other's addresses. And I realized how much they wanted community, which when you are unpublished is a lot harder to find because you don't have a publisher or a book tour or things like that to help you find other writers. So then we started to expand Lit Camp a little more to, to have more things that were bringing them together as a community. So readings, uh, during the pandemic, we did virtual writing, which we're still doing. I think that Page Street is very much a part of that. I have belonged to two other writers collectives in San Francisco, the Writers Grotto and the Castro Co-op. And I found them really helpful to do that. And so when we had the chance, thanks to San Francisco Zen Center, to get that space at a rent we could afford, it just seemed like perfect. And then I created um, a thing called Creative Caffeine Daily, which is an online community. It's based on something I did in 2009 manually, where I would send out a prompt at night so you'd have it first thing in the morning. And then I would pair people up for the week. So you would write to the prompt in the morning and then share your work with one other person and they'd give you some feedback. And people loved it, but it was so much work to run manually. I had to let it go. 
And then a couple of years ago, somebody said, you know, that's like an app. You should create that as an app. So I hired a fantastic team out of Buenos Aires and they created an online version of that. It's wonderful to see what these prompts are generating. I also have an MFA in creative writing and long for the workshops, people reading each other's work. And just like with Zen, also having a teacher, a sensei, someone who's gone before. And mm-hmm. I feel that that's when I went and earned my MFA. That was so helpful to be studying both uh, fiction writing and poetry with, with some wonderful teachers. And so the teacher, the community, that encouragement that comes from both is really, is really helpful. And I think necessary for writing as well as for deepening our mindfulness practice. So, yeah, I would agree. Since we both concur, let's end there. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time. And also just thank you for your big, big heart when it comes to helping other writers feel supported and encouraging them because we know it's kind of a lonely business to to write on our own. So thank you so much for your generosity in that way. Thank you for saying that. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Sparks End podcast. I hope you found this conversation illuminating and engaging. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to my Spark Zen Substack newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma and Alexis Georgopoulos.